Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. We're continuing our rewatch of the leftovers today as we hit episode four from season two, Orange Sticker. My name is Justin Hamilton, and I want to know who your friend is here on Big Squid. joining me again for this next episode of The Leftovers. We are officially at the halfway point of the three seasons, and as you can see, we're just building more and more momentum as the story really begins to take shape. We're also getting very close to possibly my favourite episode of TV ever, ever, of any TV show. I'm not going to tell you which episode it is. I don't even want to build it up, even though I'm quite clearly building it up at the moment, so who am I kidding? But I'm not going to tell you which one it is. It's going to happen, and then I'll tell you in the next podcast when I record that. But it's coming up. We're getting there, and I'm very excited for you, especially if you've never watched this series before. Uh, Just a quick mention that Ange Lafoypierre is performing in Melbourne in a couple of weeks at the Butterfly Club, and if you've enjoyed her work here or on the ABC's The Signal, then you can see her award-winning show live. Ange is back on the podcast in the next couple of weeks. We recorded a podcast just a couple of days ago, and it's great. It's one of my favourites of the year. I really like Ange. She's really interesting, and if you haven't seen her live before and you're in Melbourne, head to the Butterfly Club website for more details. We also still have our live show that we will uh, upload pretty soon, and the next Sophia Coppola episode, The Bling Ring, uh, they're coming up over the next few weeks. I reckon it's going to be The Bling Ring next week. So keep an eye out for that. Remember to head over and join our private Facebook page where there is a place to put in your requests for which director we'll cover next. Ben and I haven't reached a conclusion yet. Uh, We're still having a chat. We're still sifting through the thoughts. There's heaps of thoughts. There's heaps of ideas out there. There's been heaps of suggestions. Uh, But I'd love to hear from you about where we could go next. 
Time to return to the leftovers with today's episode entitled Orange Sticker. Kevin? Kevin, where are you? I know where you are. You need to call me. Evie didn't come home last night. She was out with her friends. They're gone too. Gone? I can tell you what happened to those girls. All you have to do is ask. Maybe I should tell the cops. Tell them you woke up in the exact spot where a neighbor's daughter and her two friends disappeared from. We okay? Didn't find anything? They did pull a palm print off the driver's side window. Looks like you have some explaining to do, sport. We view Jarden at night time, quiet, the residents at peace with the world. Nora sleeps deeply and is suddenly aroused from her slumber when the earthquake hits. She turns to Kevin, but he is nowhere to be found. She calls for him, afraid, desperate. She springs to her feet and picks up Lily and wakes Jewel to get her to safety. Downstairs, the lights crackle with unfettered power surges and the tap explodes water all over the kitchen. She watches as John and Michael run from their home and jump in the car. Nora sees Erica, places Lily in a makeshift cot, runs outside and asks her what is happening. Evie didn't come home last night and her friends are gone too. Gone. The worst word that Nora can hear. Out on the street, she sees a dog running along, a leash attached, no owner in sight. Nora makes her way back inside. Where is Kevin? Has he departed? This thought is too much for her, and she passes out for the briefest of moments. When she comes to, she tries to turn on the TV, but there's no signal. She can't log onto the net either. She calls emergency services, hysterical. She wants to know if it has happened again. Is this a second departure? And then Kevin appears, covered in dirt and mud, lost, in shock. Nora hugs him, relieved. But that relief is soon replaced with a sense of anger. She picks up Lily and leaves him alone in the lounge room. From behind, Paddy says, Looks like you've got some explaining to do. It is morning and Kevin showers while Paddy sits in the bathroom staring at him. In the kitchen, Nora is quiet while Kevin looks for his mobile phone and cigarettes. Maybe the baby smoked them while you were out sleepwalking, Jill suggests. Kevin explains to Nora and Jill what happened, that he found himself in the dry water bed, that he saw a car that he looked into but couldn't work out whose it was, and then saw John and Michael approaching their car, calling for Evie. He wonders if he should tell the cops, and Nora points out how foolish this would be. If he was to tell the cops this, then he would depart. Depart for a long time. There's a knock at the door and it's a ranger wanting to know if they can bring Kevin's truck and help look for the missing teenagers. They agree and Nora points out that Kevin had better look for his phone down there because if he had it with him when he woke up in the riverbank, he may have dropped it. And if someone else finds it, then he'd have to explain how it got there in the first place. Once they arrive, Nora goes looking for the girls while Kevin stays to look for his phone. He sees the car, taped off, a muddy handprint pressed perfectly against the car door. A cop asks him some basic questions, but Kevin is vague, lost, incapable of answering the simplest, the simplest of questions. He looks suspicious, but John sees him and vouches for him. John has a good standing in Jardin. Kevin goes off to help John look for the missing girls. Nora walks into Matt, holding hands with a ring of locals as they pray. He smiles when he sees his sister, but she doesn't return the smile. In fact, she looks angry. Is she angry with Matt, or does she just have other things to worry about? 
she doesn't have time for prayer. Back at the house, Jill is looking after Lily and sees Michael on the veranda praying. The tap begins to spray water again and Jill goes over to ask for help. She wonders why he isn't looking for his sister. Michael believes she and her friends have departed, but he doesn't want to talk about it because she'll think he's crazy. She doesn't believe in God and he's wary of sharing too much with anyone who doesn't believe like he believes. He jokes to Lily that he's made her feel uncomfortable. You don't make me feel uncomfortable, Jill replies. Kevin meets the parents of Evie's friends and while he speaks to them, a cop approaches John and tells him about the handprint on the door that is way too big for a teenage girl. Around them, townsfolk rush to scoop up whatever remains of the water, this blessed water for this blessed town. Nora approaches Kevin and tells him to keep looking for the phone and she leaves him to do just that. Kevin knows that there is something wrong but can't quite put his finger on it. Nora heads into a store to buy some whiskey and cigarettes. At the counter, she realises she doesn't have a purse, and that is when Virgil approaches her. He tells Nora that he'll cover it, and they formally introduce themselves to each other. Virgil looks Nora in the eye and says, I'm sorry for your loss. The shop owner tells Virgil to stop doing his creepy stuff to the locals, but Nora doesn't hear him. She's too shocked that he somehow knows what she's endured. It's night time and as the last of the cops leave, he continues to look for his phone. He heads toward where the cinder block and rope are, figuring it has to be somewhere around there. Paddy sits on a rock and plays cold warmer with Kevin. He tries to ignore her, but every time she says warmer, he follows her lead and eventually finds his phone. Paddy sings Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up. And when a car approaches, she warns Kevin about getting into it. It's John. He picks up Kevin to take him back home. He's intense. He's having a drink, much to Kevin's surprise. His daughter is missing. He's going to drink. They drive past the street they live in and John takes him over the bridge and officially out of Jarden. The people who live on the outskirts approach the car, tapping at the window, asking questions that can't be answered, shouldn't be answered. John questions Kevin as to why he moved to Jarden. A fresh start, Kevin offers? No. John counters. You paid $3.1 million for a rundown house. You want to feel safe. He then adds bitterly, there's no miracles in miracle. John pulls up at a spot, tells Kevin to wait in the car and talks to some men. Paddy leans in from the back seat and informs Kevin that it looks like his handprint has framed someone else. John gets back into the car and drives them to a motel. He gets out and from the back pulls out a baseball bat. He tells a bewildered and worried Kevin that inside is the man Isaac who pretended he had the power of foresight and warned John that something bad was about to happen to him. John also confesses that he burnt down Isaac's house. Now Evie is missing. John is convinced it is Isaac because of the handprint on the car door. If Isaac was reading handprints, was he the one who left the impression when Evie disappeared? Kevin talks John down and shares that he used to be a cop and he'll go and talk to him. He'll know if he had anything to do with Evie's disappearance. As Kevin makes his way to the motel that Isaac is in, Patty tells a story about catching her husband at the time, not only cheating on her with a woman in a motel, but when she spied through the window, she caught the woman taking a shit on him. Patty wonders if Laurie ever broke patient doctor confidentiality and told Kevin this story. He continues to ignore Patty, knocks on the door and a woman answers. She has no idea who Isaac is. From behind, Kevin hears a noise and John is using his baseball bat to break into another motel. John lied to Kevin about where Isaac is. Suddenly, a gunshot rings out and John is hit in his side, but he still manages to get in where a terrified Isaac threatens to blow them both away. 
Kevin grabs John and does his best to control the situation. Isaac doesn't know anything about Evie or what has happened. There's nothing more dangerous than a man who doesn't believe in nothing, says Isaac to Kevin. Outside, Kevin gets John into the car and takes the wheel. John calls Erica and Kevin drives towards her. Inside, she begins to operate and remove the bullet from the wound. It is in his side. He should be okay. He tells Erica not to knock him out. She administers an anaesthetic and John knows that he's about to be knocked out. He comically points this out to Kevin before sleep overwhelms him. Nora returns home. Jules says that she put Lily to bed but couldn't find any books, so she made up a story for her. Nora asks if she gave the story a happy ending. Of course, Jules says. What kind of sick fuck do you think I am? Nora pours them both an alcoholic drink and asks Jill about her father and why she thinks he sleepwalks. Jill put it down to the stress of looking after her town as the police chief while everyone who lived there was going crazy themselves. Nora rightfully points out that Kevin isn't in charge anymore so he doesn't have any responsibility, so why would he be sleepwalking now? Wherever you go, there you are, Jill replies. She then tells Nora that Michael thinks the girls departed. Nora says that she doesn't believe that, and then tells a story about how when she first began working for the government in the departed sector, she used to chase down people who claimed fraudulently that they were victims of the sudden departure. People used to lie all the time because they wanted the government checks. She tells a story about one person who pretended to part after that very day, even going as far as to leave the dog with the leash behind. She caught the guy in the end. He was using this as an excuse to escape his life. Later that night, Nora goes to the church to talk to Matt. She's angry. She came here because he said it was safe, that this place is a place of miracles. Matt shares with Nora that on the first night they arrived, his wife Mary woke up and they stayed up talking all night. He said it was a glorious moment and when they retired to bed, he was so happy. But when he woke the next day, she was back in her catatonic state. Nobody believes the story, they won't even let him talk about it, but he believes this place is real and that this is the place to be. Nora hugs Matt, her face full of compassion for her brother. Jill returns a wrench to Michael that he left behind. He's confused, scared. His belief is in flux, but it is internalised and only makes itself apparent when he bursts into tears. Behind him, a bright orange sticker that states nobody from the home departed adds a splash of colour to the grey wall. Jill takes Michael in her arms. She recognises and understands how he feels. Kevin and Erica talk. She explains to Kevin why John has begun burning people's homes down. He doesn't believe all this miracle stuff because he was in prison when the sudden departure happened. No miracles in miracles, says Kevin. Erica smiles. She's heard John say that often. She says there are miracles, and one of those miracles is Evie, who was born premature. Evie and Michael are twins, but she was born much, much earlier than her brother. Erica has heard townspeople claim that Evie and her friends are out hiding in the woods, but Erica doesn't believe that. Evie would never hurt anyone. She's exceptional. Kevin leaves and walks through the town, finally asleep, quiet. Paddy begins talking to Kevin again and questions his love for Nora and Jill, for his family, and if he does love them, why hasn't he told them about her? Finally, Kevin snaps. He hasn't told them about Paddy because she's not there. I love my family, Kevin yells at her. Then why did you try to kill yourself, Paddy asks. Paddy watched him do it, leaving the house, finding rope and then the cinder block. She watched him throw it into the lake and if it weren't for some divine intervention, he'd now be dead. I don't want to kill myself, Kevin says. 
Patty isn't so sure, but she's just glad that they're finally talking. She also tells Kevin that the girl's departed and she walks off once again singing the Rick Astley song. Kevin sits alone and then hears a voice from behind him. It is the man at the top of the tower. He calls down to Kevin, who's your friend? Kevin returns home and goes to bed. Nora rolls over and shows him that she has a solution for his sleepwalking. She found his old handcuffs and she cuffs them together so he can't wander off in the night. They're in this together and they wrap themselves around each other, arms and legs entwined, Kevin's head buried in Nora's chest. Jewel wakes and looks out at the town. It is quiet, dark, you can't even hear the wind. She looks over to the Murphy house and watches Michael scrape the orange sticker from the wall that once verified nobody who lived at this home departed. After the first three episodes of the new season pushed the storytelling into new and interesting places, including a non-linear setup that not only introduced new characters, but let us know where the characters we love are at, we have an episode that takes a moment to reset and prepare us for the rest of the season. Having said that, though, while it might be a reset, it is still full of moments that continue to up the stakes and fill us full of dread. For instance, how did you feel... When Kevin saw his muddy handprint on the side of the door, that can't be good, right? The way he looks over at it made my heart sink, and then when only a little while later they confirm it is too big to be a teenage girl's hand, ah, you can feel the tension knead your stomach into shapes you never knew it could make. Even right at the beginning, watching Nora's panic is confronting. We know there's nothing to worry about, that Kevin hasn't departed. But, well, there is something to worry about. There's a lot to worry about. But there hasn't been another departure, and Kevin hasn't joined them. That's the main thing. Watching her jump to conclusions, though, completely makes sense with the evidence presented to her, especially off the back of that conversation with the scientist back home who suggests it could happen again. I love the attention to detail, not only in the howling dogs, but the blind panic that stops her from being able to remember the password for the internet. Once again, and I know I bang on about this stuff, but these are the moments we can relate to which allow us to accept the touches of supernatural that infect the show. Also, Nora's reaction of relief followed by fury after Kevin returns. This just makes perfect sense. For Nora to have to experience that fear again, even if it was unfounded, is a lot. It's maybe too much for her. Once again, I love the next morning where Nora, Kevin and Jewel talk about what happened the previous night openly, including Jewel's joke about the baby smoking all the cigarettes while he's off sleepwalking. Doesn't the flavour of this conversation feel like ones we've had with families and friends, even if the minutiae of what these characters are talking about is completely foreign to us? All of Nora's reactions in this episode make sense and Carrie Coon continues to being pitch perfect. I also love her relationship with Jill and the way they talk to each other about baby Lily and the way they sit having a drink together. It doesn't feel like a surrogate mother-daughter bond, but more like two women who are just dealing with a lot. Jill in particular has grown into a more mature character. The experiences from the previous season are kind of bringing an emotional calmness to her and also an ability to empathise with those around her. Jill's attraction to Michael is really great to watch. I don't know if it's romantic or just an emotional attraction, but you can see her feelings etched deeply in her eyes and the way she looks at him. In fact, you can see it in the way she looks at everyone. I love Jill and I think she's the character who has her shit together the most. You can see why the actor who plays her, Margaret Qualley, Uh, just excelled so well in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood opposite Brad Pitt. She's a really good actor. John Murphy feels like a dangerous character. His inability to connect with his spiritual and emotional side means he's a man who is 
disconnected from grace. He is the opposite of Jill. He can't empathise with anyone he doesn't understand, anyone he chooses not to understand. He's driven by hard logic, so it makes sense after going to Isaac's house and seeing all those handprints all over the home that he would see the muddy hand on the car and immediately put two and two together and actually come up with the wrong conclusion. He's deeply suspicious of everyone else except his own impulsive actions. He's suspicious of Kevin too, and it is ironic that John takes him along for the ride to confront Isaac. Is this the first time also that he's been shot and had to have his wife help him out? I'm guessing at the very least he's gotten himself into trouble in the past and needed Erica's assistance. His actions are not those of a man breaking, they're the actions of a man who is broken. Isaac is correct when he says there's nothing more dangerous than a man who doesn't believe in anything. John is extremely dangerous. We get some insight into Erica as well, played by the brilliant Regina King. While she's devoted to her husband, she straddles the world between the practical and belief. It makes sense as a person who has hearing difficulties. It means at some point every day she has to use a practical solution to do something most of us take for granted. That also means she experiences time alone because once the hearing aids are taken out, she can sit inside her own head and you have to have a level of belief if this is something you endure. She sees beauty in the world and she sees a miracle in her daughter. Once miracles become commonplace, it is easy to take them for granted. Remember in the Watchmen graphic novel when Dr. Manhattan points out the odds of millions of sperm vying for an egg, creating a person who is then born, lives a full life and then somehow meets another person who they have a connection with. Do you remember that little part? I think it's in chapter 10 of Watchmen. The Blue Doctor saw that as a miracle, but one we shrug our shoulders over. It's because it's commonplace. That Evie was born so premature but managed to hold on to life and grow up is a moment of wonder for Erica that she hasn't forgotten. John has forgotten it. He probably takes it very much for granted. You could bring it up with him and he'd say that he doesn't, but that would be a lie. Erica hasn't forgotten. How could she forget? There must have been times her children were forming inside of her with her hearing aids turned off, the three of them in a world all of their own. She understands miracles because she's experienced one and she continues to help her husband because she obviously sees the good in him alongside the pain he exhibits in a world that no longer makes any sense to him. Nora has also experienced a miracle, but the dark side of that experience. Her family was driving her insane that fateful morning, and as she wished for a clear head, a bit of respect, some peace and quiet, her family disappeared. She's wrestled with that guilt for a long time, and has for the most part come to terms with it. But that type of guilt never fully goes away. In the end, you can only understand it, and then find a safe place to leave it inside of you. For her to come to Miracle in an attempt to find a safe place and then to have the world come crashing down within hours of them arriving, well, you can just understand her fear. When she visits Matt and confronts him in the church and asks, is it real? She is talking about Jarden, but she's also talking about faith. Is faith real? Is faith something that is worth connecting with if it is going to be constantly shattered and taken away from you? Matt is all about faith. He is a believer even in the face of adversity. The story he tells about Mary sounds so beautiful and perfect, but we didn't witness this night, and Mary is once again silent and motionless. Matt tells himself stories about the Bible to continue feeding his belief. Is this just another story he's told himself to maintain his faith, or is there something special about this place? Remember, it has seen miracles well before Jarden even existed, back when a cave woman lost her clan, gave birth to her baby alone, was killed by a snake's venom, and then another woman 
was able to come along and save her baby. As Matt embraces Nora after he tells his story, Nora clutches at him. If he'd referred to the Bible, I think Nora would have left. Instead, he tells a story about Mary, someone that Nora also loves and cares for, and the siblings embrace because Nora wants to believe too. And what about Kevin? What does he believe? Is he being haunted by the ghost of Paddy, or is this just his guilt manifesting? In a world that is 2% supernatural, it makes sense that Paddy, of all people, hasn't moved on to a better plane of existence. Yet Paddy keeps singing Rick Astley songs to him, which hints at subterfuge, at making fun of Kevin. He has no idea what to believe. Even when she tells him stories about her husband cheating on her, is this a ghost revealing its past, or is this just a story that Laurie told Kevin in a quiet moment that broke the client-patient confidentiality agreement? Paddy speaks truths to Kevin. Terrible, horrible truths. Kevin believes that he wants to live, but his sleepwalking actions suggest otherwise. What could be convincing Kevin to kill himself? This is what he has to understand. He needs to find his place in this world and come to terms with that decision or he is going to continue to be haunted for a long time. And with his handprint on the car door, there is now a ticking time bomb that is slowly counting down and may go off before he has a chance to reconcile the man he is today. A few squid bits for you today. Uh, There's a lot of animal imagery, as we've already discussed. Nora seeing the dog running without the leash recalls not only her story about the man who faked his own departure, but also recalls how dogs reacted on the day of the departure. Even the howling, while being a reaction from the earthquake, suggests to Nora it has happened again. Is that another goat being led to the slaughter, or do people in Miracle just really dig goats? Like, (laughs) poor goats. Maybe there are no miracles in Miracle for Goats. There are some biblical themes in this episode, including Nora alluding to the flood and the ark. John also recalls doubting Thomas, not just as an unbeliever in the idea of miracle, but then he's wounded at the rib like Jesus, and Erica puts her fingers in his wound like Thomas did to Jesus. The prayer or hymn that Matt's prayer circle says appears to date back to the Sarum Primer, a collection of prayers developed in 13th century Salisbury, England. Rick Astley's songs is not only funny, it's a reference to the internet phenomenon of rickrolling. I'm sure you remember that. If you don't, uh, look it up. It's more fun to experience that way, but it does feel like that Patty, while she's playing all these psychological games, is also maybe rickrolling you. Is Rick Astley going to turn up? That would be exciting, wouldn't it? When Kevin finds his... Oh, God, imagine if uh, Rick Astley departed. That'd be a bummer. You'd, it'd be a bummer if Rick Astley departed. <laughs> When Kevin finds his phone, a naked baby doll is seen, which feels like it might be a callback to season one's episode BJ and the AC. Maybe it's the one that he threw away and it somehow (laughs) ended up down there. Isaac is staying in the Babylon Motel. The name of Babylon is thought to derive from Bavil or Bavilum in the Akkadian language of the time, which meant gate of God or gate of the gods. As a biblical metaphor, it is a counterfeit of God's eternal city, the opposition to the rule of God by world powers. The exile of God's people from the land of blessing is conveyed through this metaphor as well. 
Thank you for joining me today. We're really in for an exciting ride in the next few episodes. I'm very happy to have your company along the way. If you have a chance and would like to leave the podcast a top review at Apple Podcasts, that would be appreciated. I'll be back with you next Tuesday. Time to finish with a quote. This one is by Sagaru, who says, You cannot suffer the past or future because they do not exist. What you are suffering is your memory and your imagination. Until then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.